0: Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84. And we will will study this psalm in its entirety this afternoon. So Psalm 84, this is the word of God. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And thus reads Psalm 84. Today, uh, we'll begin with some words of introduction. Uh, The Psalms, uh, I'll, I'll kind of start broad and then we'll move more narrowly into Psalm 84. So let's start with the book of Psalms. Um, what are the Psalms? Uh, this is review. Hopefully, the Psalms are a collection of songs and poetry, and they're not written by one person. They're actually written by many different authors over a span of probably about a thousand years. You could think of it as the events of the Old Testament carry on. There are people, um, people of God, who write down their their experiences, their their prayers to God, and although the Psalms are The the words of humans to God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are also God's words to us, and they instruct us how to live in the light of God's kingdom. And it's important to notice that the Psalms are not randomly put together in an arbitrary fashion. There's a clear intention to their organization. You might have read through the Psalms and noticed that there's book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five collections of songs. And so which book is Psalm 84 in? It's in book three. Book three includes Psalms 73 to 89. And many of the songs or the psalms in this book are darker. They take a darker tone. Many of them are songs of lament, where the psalm begins with a very negative um, moment in in history of Israel when the enemies of God are closing around God's people, and and the psalmist cries out for help, and then the songs of lament end beautifully with trusting in God. But Psalm eighty four is in the midst of these songs of lament, these the darker psalms, and Psalm eighty four is is quite different. It's actually very encouraging, a very uplifting psalm in this section, and so that's some context about Psalm eighty four. Now, let's look at the title. It gives us some information. It says, to the choir master. So the song was to be given to someone who would then uh, either uh, would write music for it or it was already sent with music and they would make sure this was sung. Also, it says, according to the Gittith, uh, to quote Pastor Campbell this last summer, no one really knows what that means. (laughs) Um, It's... Probably a musical term, a liturgical term. Um, the singular form of that word, gittith, is gath, and that was a city in the Philistines. Some people think there was like a harp or some kind of musical way that it was taken from that city. Other people um, see the word gath as a wine press. so this was a song that was associated with the harvest, um, but we, we don't rightly know. What we do know is that this was originally meant to be sung. We read our psalms as a book. We read them but they were originally sung and sung in Hebrew. And so that's more of how they would have originally been experienced by the people of God. It's also written, it says, by the sons of Korah. It also could be for the sons of Korah. So it was either written by the sons of Korah or written for them. They were gatekeepers and also musicians. And so um, those are some options here. It doesn't change the meaning of our psalm. Something wonderful to note, though, is who are the sons of Korah? Their ancestor rebelled against Moses and was swallowed up by the earth, and here they are, hundreds of years later, singing the praises of God. God is a gracious and merciful God. Well, we're going to have two main points as we go through this psalm. The first point is, we'll, we'll consider the what I'll call the close context, uh, the psalm from the perspective of the psalmist. And then the second point, we'll we'll kind of zoom back and we'll look at psalm 84 from the context of all of scripture and of course we'll be talking about jesus christ um, when we do that if i could put this sermon into one sentence here's what it would be although god dwelled in the jerusalem temple in a special way it is through the new temple of jesus christ that god dwells with his people forever well let's move to the first point The first main point, and that is God's dwelling in Jerusalem. God's dwelling in Jerusalem. And I have three sub points, and I've divided the text into three different sections. I've actually divided them according to the Selah. You can see it there. Um, So verses 1 through 4, and then 5 through 8, and 9 through 12. So the first sub point, number one, the loveliness of Zion the loveliness of Zion. And as I said, this is verses 1 through 4. We have this beautiful description of God's dwelling in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, how do we know this psalm is talking about the Jerusalem temple? Consider some of the words and language used in this psalm. We have, first of all, the dwelling place of God, the courts of the Lord, later the altars of, of God, and it's also the house of God. This is describing the temple in Jerusalem where God dwelled in a unique fashion. This was also called Mount Zion. We will use those interchangeably. So let's work through these first four verses. Look at verse one. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Or as some older translations say, How amiable is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Now, why is this dwelling place lovely? Why is it amiable? Well, it's because that's where God is. God is there. That's what makes it lovely. And the psalmist beautifully says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Why does he call God Lord of hosts? That's one of the names for God, how God has revealed himself to us. And the, the word or the title, the name Lord of hosts or Lord Sabaoth, It's a royal and a majestic name for God. He's the the God of countless hosts of angels in the cosmic realm. There is no rival for this king. And of course, against the context of these other psalms in book three, where the enemies of God surround Israel, you can see why the psalmist cries, O Lord of hosts, this is the God who will not be beaten. Verse two is a beautiful verse. I'm going to say that a lot today. There's a lot of beautiful verses in this psalm. Verse 2, "My soul longs, yes faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God." Now, what are the courts of the Lord? Why why specifically that word courts? Why didn't they say the temple? Well, who could go into the temple in Jerusalem? It was only the priests, the Levites. And so a normal worshiper in Israel, they would only be able to go to the courts, the courtyard around the temple. And there they would be able to worship God, to bring their sacrifices and to sing. And so the psalmist in dramatic fashion says that his soul longs and even faints or even meets its end to be there just in the courtyard around the temple where God's presence was. And why? Well, look at our verse. He is the living God. He is not there for a moment and then gone. He is there. He is there in the temple. He is the living God. Verse three is an interesting verse. It talks about some birds. Uh, There's a sparrow and a swallow. And it talks about them finding the home where they could nest their young and they can feel safe. Um, Some say that there were actually sparrows and swallows that lived like in the roof of the temple in Jerusalem and that the psalmist is jealous of these birds because they're close to the Lord's presence. Perhaps that could be, I think this is more a metaphor, as a bird, swallow, or a sparrow finds a, a safe place to nest their young and to feel safe doing that. So therefore people who draw near to God and his presence experience something of the kind. It's a wonderful picture of God's tender care for his people. And then verse 4 says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Now think about it in the context um, of the Jerusalem temple. Who are the ones who dwell in the house of God ever singing their praise? Those are the Levites, right? They were the ones in the temple who would be ever singing the praise of God dwelling in his house. And so the psalmist sings that those who possess such close access are truly blessed. They ever sing your praise. And so in this, these first four verses, we've seen the loveliness of Zion. The second point, verses 5 through 8, is a blessed journey to Zion. A blessed journey to Zion. Verses 5 through 8 describes this pilgrimage or this journey of someone going to the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 5, it's another beautiful saying, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, just so there's no confusion, there are no literal highways inside this person's heart. The highways to Zion are not in the psalmist's heart or the one who desires to be there. He's saying, Um, he's not saying there are physical roads inside of you. It's a poetic way of saying that the direction of the heart is towards Zion. That is where the heart aspires to be. That is what the heart is drawn to, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 6 describes the Valley of Baca. Now, there's some um, differences in translating this term Um, Some think it it refers to an actual place that pilgrims would pass through. Perhaps it did. Um, Some translate it as weeping, so the Valley of Weeping. Others as mulberry, um, which was a tree that grew in only a dry place. Regardless, though, this valley was a barren place. Look at the the words that come directly after it. Uh, It speaks of, of it becoming a place of water and springs and green things. And so... The the psalmist is not saying that as pilgrims go to Zion, they find this dry valley and they fill it up with water and make a beautiful garden. No, it's saying that these travelers and and journeyers and pilgrims who go to Zion, as they pass through this desolate place, it's as if. It's a beautiful place of water and a a place of springs because what is their destination? Their destination is Zion. Zion. They're going to see the, the living God, and so any difficulty in that journey is nothing to them. Uh, I remember a time when I was, I was climbing Mount Baldy, and if you've ever climbed Mount Baldy, there's this one section where it's very desolate. Uh, there's The trail goes into 10 trails, and it's very loose and very steep. And usually when I'm up there, I usually put my head down and I clench my teeth, and I say, let's get through this section. And one time, I brought one of my friends, and. As I was going up this section, I turned around, and he was crouched down looking at this, this bush. And he was just so admiring this bush. And he said, look at this beautiful little bush that's growing right here. <laughs> you see, my friend had joy in his journey. He, he, it wasn't a barren place to him. It was a beautiful garden. And so I think this helps, under, help us, helps us understand the mindset of those who travel to Zion. They go through the Valley of Baca, the Valley of Weeping, The valley of barren, dry places. But to them, it's a beautiful place because they're going to see the living God. Verse 7, it says that they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Um, When it says going from strength to strength, it's talking about their strength is ever increasing. They go from strength to strength. They're approaching the dwelling place of God and, and it's as if there's a spring in their step. They go from strength to strength. And verse 8, again, calls upon God as the Lord of hosts. And then he says, give ear, O God of Jacob. Now, why does he plead for the God of Jacob to hear his prayer? Many times when uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob is referenced is because God made a covenant with them and with real people. And so that is referenced to, to talk about that relationship they have with God. But also, Jacob had a very interesting um, thing happen to him. He was in a place that is called Bethel, right? The house of God. And he had a dream of a ladder that reached up to heaven. And angels are descending and ascending on this ladder. It was a place, uh, kind of a proto-temple. A place where God was dwelling on earth in a a way. And so this psalmist is talking about the dwelling place of God here. Perhaps he uses this phrase, God of Jacob, to reference this time. But you cannot read these verses and you miss the excitement in the psalmist's heart. God had chosen Jerusalem as his dwelling place, the place where he would be. And as a pilgrim of Israel, you would be excited beyond words to go to Jerusalem and to see the temple. That would be an extraordinary moment in your life, something you would never forget. I want you to try to imagine yourself as one of these pilgrims who's traveling to Zion. Maybe if you're coming from the east to Jerusalem, you would, you would climb to the top of the Mount of Olives and you look across the valley and see Jerusalem, the city of kings where David had reigned. And if you would squint your eyes, perhaps you could see the gold of the temple flashing in the sun. And then you would descend into the valley and you would go up in through the gates and there would be a, a great city, something like you probably had never imagined. And you would walk up to the temple mound after maybe preparing unleavened loaves for a thanksgiving offering. And then you would enter the courtyard of the temple. And what would you see? You would immediately sense the sobriety of that place. Because what happened in that courtyard? Sacrifices were being done. And you would smell the burning. You smell the blood. And you would be reminded of the goodness of your God. For only a holy God can dwell with holy people. And your holy God has provided a way for you to be in close proximity to him and to not be destroyed. And so the psalmist has a blessed journey to Zion. Let's move on to our third point, which is in verses 9 through 12. Blessed is he who trusts in God and his anointed one. Blessed is he who trusts in God and his anointed one. The third and final section of the psalm focuses on the worshiper who trusts in God and his anointed one. The word anointed one is the same as Messiah or in the New Testament, Christ. They're all the same word. They mean the same thing. So let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 starts with the word behold. That's an intention getter. Trying, the psalmist is getting your attention. And what's your attention to be drawn to? God's anointed one. And he calls him a shield. Now let's unpack this. Who is this anointed one? The psalmist speaks of this anointed one as a shield. Well, in the context, this anointed one would be the Davidic king, the one who sat upon David's throne, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who through the Davidic covenant would to be protecting the people of God from all their enemies. And for those who were under the Davidic covenant, it was very right for them to trust and to put their hope in the anointed one. And this is why the psalmist describes this anointed one as a shield. He is the one who protects God's people from God's enemies. In verse 10, another beautiful verse. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. There's just no comparison between being near God in his temple in Jerusalem for the psalmist and dwelling anywhere else, even in the greatest mansion that the world could provide. And this is beautiful, poetic language. He uses very dramatic words to show his desire to be near God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We move on to verse 11, and this gives more explanation to verse 10. Why is a day in God's courts better than a thousand elsewhere? Because the Lord God is a sun and shield, and he bestows favor and honor. This is a very interesting place. It's one of the only places in scripture that God is called a sun. It's one of the more rare occurrences of this analogy. And I say analogy because that's what this is. Consider the sun, brothers and sisters, The sun and its relation to all things around it. The sun is the source of light. Light comes from the sun. You can see that light is in the sun. And because of that, all things around it can be lit. They can be lightened up. And this is a helpful analogy of how good things come from God to his creatures. Um, Consider the second part of verse 11. Right after this, he bestows favor And honor. And so all good things come from God, favor and honor, just as light comes from the sun. Scott Swain helpfully writes God is the source of all good, as one who is himself good, and as one who is in himself good the first good in the order of goodness. (laughs) And if that confuses you, just think about the sun. It's the first order of light, and therefore all other things that are light, or you can see them, it's because of the sun. It comes from the sun. And so the sun and its rays is a beautiful picture of how God gives goodness to all things, or to, to his people. And this is further established in verse 11 at the very end there. He says, no good thing, Does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? Verse 12 concludes the psalm. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. It's not just someone who says, yes, I love God's dwelling. It's great. It's over there. But the person who says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, is the same person who trusts in that God. As Spurgeon wrote, a man must know the Lord by the life of real faith or he can have no true rejoicing in the Lord's worship or the Lord's house. Now, however beautiful this picture is in Psalm 84 of the temple in Jerusalem, something's missing. Something remains unresolved. Because what happened to the Jerusalem temple? This beautiful picture in place, it was destroyed. The prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of the glory cloud of God rising up from the temple and departing. And what, what happens? The Babylonians come and destroy the temple. They take away the Davidic king into exile. Zion is no more. Psalm 137, probably one of the last psalms written, he says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And so we must, in our second point Turn to the New Testament to consider Psalm 84 in the eyes of Christ. So let's move on to our second main point: God's true and better dwelling. God's true and better dwelling. And I have three subpoints here, and they're the, they're gonna follow the first three subpoints in the first point. So the first sub point, the loveliness of of Jesus Christ. The loveliness of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 84, the first four verses describe the loveliness of Zion, the Jerusalem temple, where there was access to God's presence, but it was limited. That temple was only a type and a shadow of the true temple between God and man. And now we come to the New Testament. This is exciting stuff. In John 1.14 what does it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you see the ramification of John's words? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 2.9, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is the true temple. And in his ministry, Jesus constantly is showing how he is better than the old temple. It happens a lot. For example, he tells Nathanael, one of his disciples, that Nathanael would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. The angels are descending and ascending on him, on the Son of Man. You see, he is the meeting place between God and the earth. To experience Jesus and to believe in him is to experience the presence of God in a greater way than anyone in the old temple could experience. And this is also why Jesus tells the the woman of Samaria that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The place to be near God's presence and God's dwelling no longer is a geographic place in this world. It is now tied to the person of Jesus Christ. And those who believe in him worship God and meet him in spirit and truth. And this also explains why Jesus says, destroy this temple, And in three days, I will raise it up. Remember, the Jews thought he's talking about the real temple. He claims he's going to destroy our temple. But John, he adds as narration, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And this is where we come to the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the true and better temple. And there we meet God in in a way that is beautiful in, in the crucifixion. Think of the old temple. The only way to to access the presence of God was from at a distance and through the sacrifices of animals. And these covered sin, but they did not pay for it. Remember, a God that is holy needs to dwell with holy people. And Hebrews 10 tells us that through the death of Christ, whose flesh is symbolically like the veil of the temple, and it was torn... And therefore, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. We have confidence to meet with God himself through Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of Jesus being the true and better temple. For he is how we meet God and are not destroyed. Back to Psalm 84. It compels us to consider the loveliness of Jesus Christ. He is the true temple that was destroyed only to be raised up again three days later. And Jesus is building a new temple and that is the church this is how paul speaks of the church he calls it a temple and as individual believers we also are kinds of temples for paul tells us that in our bodies the holy spirit dwells we are temples of the holy spirit now there's many implications of this it can and has filled many books but let me leave you with a few things on this first subpoint If God dwells with us through our union with Jesus Christ, who is the true temple of God, and if God dwells among his people who are gathered and assembled together in his name, then there are a few implications. There is no room for division and infighting in the church. Paul talks about this. He says that all true Christians have access to God the Father through Christ, in one spirit the same god dwells in us and if, if if the same god dwells in me and he dwells in you then we're on the same team and we should not be divided and we should not fight against one another furthermore if the church is the temple of the holy spirit where god dwells then we must keep the church pure we must keep the church clean this is a very good reason for church discipline. If God truly dwells among us as a church and is building us up into a temple, then we cannot let unrepentant sin carry on unopposed in the church. For God himself dwells among us in our midst. And lastly, if the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then value and highly prize what we do here on Sundays. For the people of God Gathered together to worship him. And Christ has promised that he will be with us in a special way, even if it's just two or three of us, when we worship him. And so, brothers and sisters, in 2024, I urge you to prize the public worship here at Trinity. Don't miss out. For as God's people gather to worship him, that is a lovely thing. And just to reinforce that point, I want to read from Hebrews Chapter 12, as the writer to the Hebrews um, tells them a very beautiful truth. He says this in in chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we gather to worship together, brothers and sisters, we have begun to taste of that beautiful picture of dwelling with God in Zion. And so we can say, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Let's move on to the second point. The second subpoint, a blessed journey to the heavenly Zion. A blessed journey to the heavenly Zion. This is in verses 5 through 8. The psalmist in these verses, remember, described the journey or the pilgrimage of someone going to Jerusalem to worship God there at the temple. The person is blessed to. In their heart are the highways to Zion. Their heart loves to go towards the the dwelling of God. And as they go through barren places, they are, as it were, turned into beautiful green and lush places because of the destination, because they go to be with God. And when we consider what Jesus Christ has done, how we are united with him in his perfect work, and that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, God himself dwells within us, we are now drawn further up, And further in to a more glorious truth. Because, brothers and sisters, even though God dwells with us, we still sin. There is still more yet in this glorious picture of God dwelling with his people. And I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, you can just listen. This is a picture of the end of all things. And this is our heavenly Zion to which we journey And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then if you look down in verse 22 of that same chapter, I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so, brothers and sisters, as we consider the dwelling place of God, let us consider and contemplate our future in the new heavens and the new earth when we will dwell with God himself. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 84 describes the dwelling place of God, and he desires to be there. And what is the supreme, ultimate dwelling place of God? But the new heavens and the new earth, when we will dwell with him face to face. That's one of those sentences in our Bible that I will never fully understand, but I will keep trying. We will see God face to face. We will be his people. And what's the result of God dwelling with his people? Our tears will be wiped away. We will never die. We will never mourn or feel pain because the former things have passed away. And so I ask you, do you rightly value your future home with God? Does your soul long for the heavenly Zion? Does your soul faint for the courts of the Lord? Does your heart and flesh sing for joy knowing what lies ahead of you in heaven? And so consider your future home, your dwelling place with God, the creator of all. And you will experience God himself there in the new heavens and the new earth. As verse 4 says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That's our future. Not just the Levites get to be near God, but we all get to be near God, near his presence. And so as you journey to the heavenly Zion, I ask you, are the highways to heaven in your heart, as you go through difficult places in your life, does your destination turn those places into places of springs and pools and green things and lush gardens. For truly a day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. Let's consider in the last place the third subpoint. Blessed is he who trusts in Jesus the Christ. Blessed is he who trusts in Jesus the Christ. This is in verses 9 through 12. In Psalm 84, the psalmist looks to the Davidic king, the anointed one, the one who will save Israel from their enemies. But what happened to the kings who sat in Jerusalem on David's throne? They failed. What happened to the anointed one, Israel would ask? Well, as God had promised through his covenant with David, if the kings who came after David were faithless, then they would lose the land of Canaan and their throne. But God had promised that his Messiah would come from the line of David and that the, the scepter would never depart from David's throne. And so, God had promised that his throne would be established forever. So, what happened? Well, this is the, when we get to the end of the Old Testament, we start to see the, the strong expectation. That the line of David's kings had failed. And so, we look to the future, to the Messiah. When will he come? When will he appear? And so, in one morning in Bethlehem, in the city of David, was born a little baby who was the promised Christ, the anointed one, and he would establish the line of David forever. We just celebrated this in Christmas. And so, let us return to Psalm 84, the last four verses, with the eyes of faith. Look look at verse 9. We can say with great confidence and hope, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. We do not look to a king seated in Jerusalem, but we look to Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, our king and our savior. Just as the psalmist looked away from himself to the king, so we look away from ourselves to our king. We say, look at his face, behold his face, and therein lies our hope. Look at verse 10. Is it not better to be in Christ to be the lowliest saint in the church than to not be in Christ and have the greatest fame and wealth in the world. I think true Christians have this kind of honest humility, like John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. If your priorities are elsewhere, you need to think about that. This, is, this could be very convicting to you. Look at verse 11. The Lord God is a son, We saw that God shows goodness to his creatures because he alone is the source of goodness. And the scriptures actually use the same language about Jesus Christ, the the language of light. John says, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So, brothers and sisters, God is our son And the Lord Jesus Christ is our son. He is the son of righteousness, as it says in Malachi. He is light and in and of himself and through him we have light and we have all good things in the gospel. And then in verse 12, we end with, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. How do we trust in God and receive blessing? By looking to Jesus Christ who has paid the price on Calvary and defeated death and Hades, it is only by trusting in Jesus Christ that you will be saved from your sins. And so in Psalm 84, we've looked at God's dwelling in Jerusalem, the loveliness of Zion, the blessed journey to Zion, and the worth of hoping in God's anointed one. And we have seen how these things are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ, the true temple of God And we have seen how our journey to heaven, to be with him, is a blessed one, just as the psalmist describes. And we have seen that the one who trusts in God's Messiah will indeed be blessed. And brothers and sisters, I pray that God would give us grace as we continue in our journey to that celestial city, to that heavenly Zion, where we will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. O Lord, you dwelled in glory in the temple in Jerusalem, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, you dwelled. And O Lord, as we consider the loveliness of Jesus Christ, we consider our own wickedness, and we ask how can we be made right with a holy God? It is only through the anointed one, through Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God and Son of Man, who has paid the price for us, He is our captain and our king. He triumphed over death, and so will we. Lord, I pray for those here who are having difficulties in their journey to the heavenly Zion. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that the difficult and desolate places and situations of their life would become beautiful as they consider their destination to be with God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would apply these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.